You're listening to the Money and Politics Podcast. I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. The issue of corporate political giving is a fairly persistent topic in campaign finance these days, but it took on renewed interest in the wake of the insurrection on Capitol Hill on January 6th. In that aftermath, corporations ranging from Airbnb to Walmart announced that they would be making changes to the way that they doled out their political cash. Some asked for their money back from specific politicians who had refused to certify the presidential election results. Others announced a temporary pause to giving to Republicans, and some indicated they were just done giving to candidates altogether, at least for now. I wanted to speak with someone who has been paying close attention to corporate political giving for a long time and can put the latest developments in context. The very best person to do that is Bruce Freed, and he's my guest today. Bruce is the president and co-founder of the Center for Political Accountability, a nonprofit advocacy organization that is leading the way when it comes to achieving corporate political disclosure and accountability. So what should we make of all of these pronouncements from the companies? What is the likely impact? Are they finding other ways to channel their dollars into politics? Bruce is here to answer that and many more questions. But first, a quick word from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. And Bruce joins me here now. Bruce, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Why don't we start with the Center for Political Accountability? I'd love to hear a little bit about the work that you all do over there. The center was founded 18 years ago, myself and a colleague. You know, we were very, very concerned at that point about political spending by companies, much of which was not reported or partially reported. And also, this was money that was being used that came from shareholders, not the corporate funds that you see running through the political action committees, but this would be treasury money, much larger amounts, five, six, and seven figures. You know, our goal was to make t- political spending by companies transparent and accountable. We wanted to have boards involved to set policies governing the company's political spending. We wanted the boards really to consider the risk that the company faced with their political spending. And that was risk that was felt by the shareholders, since the shareholders really are affected by stock price. And, you know, we found that there are times when when a company's stock price, a company's image, it can be seriously affected by political spending. You know, what we've done is focused on those contributions that are in the five, six and seven figures. The corporate money is where the big money is. That's where the impact is, you know, giving through groups like the 527 committees that have reshaped uh, state and national politics over the past decade. And one could say, you know, contributed to the crisis that we faced today. We've engaged companies through the use of the shareholder resolution. You know, that's very important because it means that you deal directly with companies. And our goal is really to work with companies to get them to adopt these policies, policies that really change the way they're approaching political spending. You know, in the end, the impact of our effort has been to make corporate political disclosure and accountability the norm. That's a fundamental change. 
And it's definitely a positive one. And it's, it's something I know you all have been up to for a while, but more uh, but very recently, there's been an attentiveness, I think, to corporate giving, as there often kind of it seems to ebb and flow the level of public attention paid to it. And it definitely has hit a higher point recently, I think, in the wake of those horrific attacks on the Capitol on January 6th, you saw a slew of companies come out and just say a range of things, right? They were not going to give at all. They were going to not give to certain folks. Maybe for those listening that don't know, can you just walk us through what you perceived as the reaction from corporate America to those events on January 6th when it comes to political contributions? It shook them badly. This was a real traumatic event. I think it was akin to 9-11. It was seen. That's the thing that's very important, the live streaming of the attack. You know, it was something that that was really not a brief event, but it was an event that really took, you know, that, that consumed an afternoon and was very, very violent. And that's, I think, that's what made it so searing. And that's why you had companies calling a halt or calling a pause. Now, I mean, I think you have to recognize that, you know, they're talking about temporary pauses. You know, we'll have to wait and see how long this goes on for, what happens in the fall. But I think that, you know, you had some companies that were concerned about the optics of this, but there are others that I think they were concerned about what it meant for the country and what it meant for our democracy. You had the major trade associations, the Business Roundtable and the U.S. Chamber and the National Association of Manufacturers speaking out. But you also had many companies who were taking action with their political action committees. Let me just say, though, that the limit, the actions in many cases are quite limited. They just refer to the to the PACs, not to the contributions they're making with corporate funds to the 527s, the trade associations, the C4s, super PACs. We'll have to see what happens on that. But clearly, the immediate reaction was traumatic. And again, we'll have to wait and see what happens as we get into the fall. How do you interpret the kind of various ways that these companies have approached for those that have decided to take some sort of stand when it comes to their political contributions in the wake of January 6th? How do you interpret the fact that they've done it uh, in some ways uh, quite different from one another? There are some who have said we're specifically not giving to the candidate campaign accounts of the individuals who they you know feel incited the January 6th events. And then there are others who have said we're putting a pause on all of our candidate giving. And then to your point, it's not clear the extent to which they've put a pause or a halt of any kind on their political giving to these 527 groups and to other sort of non-candidate committees. I guess that kind of diversity, certainly for me, as someone who doesn't follow all of corporate giving nearly as closely as you do, makes me at least skeptical, I should say, about the commitment versus the optic side of it is Am, am I being too cynical here, or do you think that just reflects the fact that these companies are taking slightly different positions from one another on sort of what the cause of this issue was, what the severity was, and what their role as corporate citizens in it should be? I think you've really hit the mark on that. You know, some of it really relates to the companies and, and how the companies approach political spending. And, you know, when you use the word companies, you're talking about the senior executives. Those are the ones who make the decision. So how are they reacting personally to this? You know, again, we're going to have to see if the actions match the rhetoric. What happens when the moment passed? And I hate to say it, but you, you take a look at the reaction of, of the Republicans on Capitol Hill on this. The immediate reaction was horror of quite a few of them. But a week or two out, they're temporizing. You really don't know what you, well, clearly what you're seeing 
with the Senate is that there are very few who are going to vote for conviction of Trump in an impeachment trial. So we have to see how this plays going further out. But I think you have to take a look at what happens during the upcoming shareholder season. You're having the annual general meetings of companies. There are many shareholder resolutions. Center for Political Accountability has a resolution calling on companies to disclose and dot board oversight of their political spending. It's filed by our partners. That's going to be coming up for a voted companies. There's a lobbying disclosure resolution, which blends with the center's resolution. Again, that's going to be coming up for a vote. What are the size of the votes? I think great deal of attention will be paid to that. And that's going to be a signal of sort of the, the shareholder reaction to this. Companies pay close attention to that. You know, we found that in, in the engagement that we've had with companies on political spending through our resolution. So I think that we'll have to see you know, which parties are affected, whether both parties are affected. You know, one of the things that I think is significant is the companies that say we're not going to be giving to those members who refuse to certify the election or they see aiding and abetting the seditious behavior. Again, let's see how this plays out. Clearly, this is going to be a year of turmoil politically. And you sort of touched on it a bit ago, but maybe you can share in greater detail, what are the ways that these corporations get involved with their political spending? Because I think when the average person, myself included, reads about, oh, they, they've put a pause or they've put a stop on political giving, it's easy to imagine that that is a monolithic thing. And so even if they caveat it by saying, oh, it's only for particular members that were withholding contributions or maybe for an entire party, it's not clear immediately if that's actually all of their political spending. And, and I think you suggested a few minutes ago, it's not, right? That there are other avenues by which we expect these companies to continue spending. Can you just shed a little bit more light on what are some of those avenues? Where How do corporate dollars get into the political space otherwise? They get into the political space many ways. They get in through third-party groups. Now, third-party groups mean these committees known as 527 committees, the governor's associations, state legislative campaign committees, attorneys general associations. That's where a company gives to that group, and that group in turn sends the money down the line. So a company can give to that group, and the money then does reach candidates directly or indirectly. Companies uh, give through trade associations. A portion of their dues or other payments to trade associations with some of the big ones, it goes into the political spending pot. That would be the case with groups like Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Those are huge political spenders. Again, the company's money goes to those groups. Those groups in turn make the contributions or the expenditures there. Then you have companies giving through the secretive social welfare organizations. That's where the contributions remain anonymous. That's a real problem because both both with trade associations and the 501c4s, there's no disclosure. We pay careful attention to that because both of those groups really launder corporate money. They keep it secret. So that's how the money goes. And, uh, you know, companies can also give directly to candidates at the state level. But I think, you know, you, you have to recognize that there are many ways that companies give and just cutting off or dealing with the PAC spending is very limited. And so, I mean, I think it would be, is it safe to say then that the dollars from these corporations could very well still end up in the coffers of these candidates, either via these 527 groups or or maybe not in the coffers of the candidate directly, but on campaigns that are supporting these candidates. I mean, and so in that way, is there a practical effect or or is it more about 
sending a signal that corporations are rethinking this than it is actually withholding any sort of significant amount of funds from these campaigns. They're withholding the PAC money. That's a significant amount. But there's an equally significant amount that still could go in. Companies are calling a halt. They're rethinking for the time being. I mean, you know, we're paying close attention to what that means. The center last October released an updated model code of conduct for corporate political spending. It was developed by the center and the Wharton Schools, the Zicklin Center for Business Ethics Research. And let me say it received the input of corporate governance experts, of executives at companies, asset managers, investors. You know, it was a wide range. Uh, and the model code now is being, it was sent to the S&P 500 last Friday by the Center for Political Accountability. It's being recommended by other organizations like the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility. It's been mentioned in op-eds in USA Today and Boston Globe that I wrote, I co-authored with Michael Porter, a professor at Harvard Business School. So the model code is out there. That provides companies with a framework for rethinking, recalibrating, rejiggering what they do politically with their money. Can you share a little bit about some some of the provisions in that? Give us a little bit of a flavor of what that model code that businesses might be adopting would entail. Well, there are two areas that are the key to the model code. The first is the preamble. The preamble really lays out a framework for the societal and ethical considerations that companies really should take when they're making political spending decisions, when they're setting the policies on whether to spend or how to spend. We've taken an agnostic position on political spending. Political spending is allowed by companies is considered a First Amendment right. So we say, you know what, it's up to the company to decide whether to do it. But we say, if they decide to do it, then they have to approach it very carefully. They have to manage the risk. And today, risk has increased exponentially. Companies today are recognizing that they do have societal obligations and responsibilities that they are participants in the democratic process. And they need to take those into account in their political spending decisions. And as they look out onto the consequences of their spending. In too many cases, companies have had blinders on when they've made their political spending decisions. They've just taken a look at who will receive it immediately. Will it create a pro-business climate? Will it help them on certain specific policy or legislative matters? And they really haven't looked out to see what does it mean for redistricting? What does it mean for gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering, racial equity, and racial justice? You know, the climate change. You know, these are very important today because with social media and with the rise of social media, consumers now are paying much more attention to companies and what they're doing. Employees are paying much more attention. That affects the bottom line. It affects employee morale. Now, I think, you know, there are three provisions in the model code that I think are are very important. One is that both the board of a company should require that trade associations or other third-party groups receiving money would report back to them on how the money is being used and the candidates, you know, whom the spending is promoting. Then the other uh, second one is that the company should review the positions of the candidates and organizations to which it contributes to determine whether those positions conflict with the company's core values and policies. That's very important because the whole issue of alignment is something that that shareholders, consumers, employees are paying very close attention to. And the last one is that the board of directors, you know, independent of this review, should consider the broader societal and economic harm and risk 
pros posed by the company's political spending. So it means that they have to, the company, both management and directors need to look at their spending three-dimensionally and they need to like take a look at risk three-dimensionally. I'm curious to hear more about this issue of alignment. I know that you all uh, have done some really great research kind of painting a picture about the divergence between some of the professed uh, positions of companies and the positions of entities and candidates and elected officials that their dollars go to support. First, can you just kind of lay out maybe a little bit of what that research has shown and and maybe a few instances where that's the case? But I'll also add as kind of a, a follow up to that right off the bat is, how do you explain that? You know, how do you explain that divergence? Is it, again, just about optics and what they are trying to project to the world versus what they actually want? Or is there just a fundamental sort of lack of vision from these companies that, to your point a moment ago, they're thinking too myopically about, well, what problem am I trying to solve right now, as opposed to how do these dollars trickle down into something else down the line? So, yeah, maybe just curious about what that research has shown and your take on why there is that gap. We laid everything out, all of our research out in a report entitled Conflicted Consequences, and it's on our website. The Conflicted Consequences report is really a graphic report. You know, I use the analogy of a graphic novel because, you know, once you read the introduction and, and the foreword, there is a flowcharts. And the flowcharts trace the money from the company to, in this case, we used 527 committees, then to the recipients, you know, what were the electoral outcomes that, that were resulted from the spending? And then what were the legislative policy and legal outcomes? And what we found is that there were major divergences between company policies on diversity, company policies on climate change, even company policies, business strategies on health care. You know, were there real conflicts? You know, for instance, on gerrymandering, you had companies contributing to a state legislative campaign committee back in the 2010 election cycle. What happened in that election is that you had the flipping of state legislatures. And when you had the flipping of state legislatures, you had redistricting. And in some states, there was there was gerrymandering and egregious gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering. Racial gerrymandering, that was that the courts held to be racial. That's the thing very important. So you have that conflict there. You know, companies having really very strong diversity policies. And frankly, there was a real conflict, you know, when you had Blacks and Hispanics and others, you know, who were packed into districts and it was very clear why that was the case. You had the attack on LGBTQ rights. Uh, North Carolina is a prime example. You know, after the 2010 and 2012 elections, flipping of the legislature election of a governor, 2016, you get a bill called HB2, the transgender bathroom law. Now, companies have, in many cases, have very progressive policies on LGBTQ employees in the community. That was a direct conflict on that. And many companies spoke out after the fact, after the barn door closed. You've had the attack on women's reproductive rights. You know, companies are making a, a big effort now to be more inclusive in terms of of the women employees, you know, women being moving up through management, being more sensitive to them. And yet, let's say in states like Georgia and Missouri, you had money that helped elect state legislatures that passed highly restrictive abortion legislation. But you can go into climate change, you know, companies that have taken very strong positions saying we have to address climate change. We recognize it as a serious problem. They have business strategies to do this. And yet their money is going to elect attorneys general who are bringing suit or joining in suits 
to overturn the car emission standards that California adopted. Companies that say that they that endorsed the Paris Climate Accord and then gave to attorneys general candidates who then filed suit to overturn the Environmental Protection Agency's clean power standards on this. You know, you have another example with the Affordable Care Act. You know, a company like Walmart that's been moving very steadily in, in, into providing health care and built their model on Obamacare, but you know, giving money to uh, you know the an attorneys general association that in turn contributed several hundred thousand dollars to help elect an attorney general who was the lead the lead plaintiff in the suit to overturn the Affordable Care Act. So this is where you see the conflict. And all of this is laid out in conflicted consequences. You know, now you ask about it, what about the optics of it? I think in many cases, you know, companies are giving to buy access. Companies are giving because they're looking at developing relationships, but they're not paying attention and giving the attention that they should pay to what are the broader consequences, broader consequences that have business consequences for them. And should we say, they could have potentially disastrous business consequences, or at least very harmful consequences, driving consumers away, affecting employee morale. I mean, conflicted spending now is a major issue. In the fall campaign, I was getting calls from paper after paper after paper asking about that. They were doing stories on their own. So that that's become a major issue where the media is calling companies to account for this. They're paying very close attention to it. And how have you seen then companies react to that model code of conduct that you and the Wharton School put together? Are you getting a very warm reception to that? Has anyone yet formally adopted it? Do you expect to see adoption you know, in the coming weeks and months now that you've made it as widely available as you have? It's just come out and we've just been sending it out. But companies are expressing interest. They're asking about it. I mean, there was one major company, we were frankly very surprised that they did raise the issue of how should they approach their spending and expressed interest in the model code. I think that there will be greater interest in this. I know that there are groups like the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility who have been bringing this to the attention of companies. A letter went out today in which, you know, the, the model code is is cited. You know, there were two op-eds recently that I co-authored with Harvard uh, Business School professor Michael Porter in USA Today in Boston Globe, in which the model code, code is mentioned. The word is getting out. And I think that this is a fertile moment because companies are and will be looking at how do we deal with political spending and the risks that it poses? This, for many companies, is a risk management issue. It's a corporate governance issue, which means it transcends partisanship. That's the thing that's very important. When companies accepted that political spending was a risk to be managed, that was a very important step in how they looked at this, and it de- departisanized the whole ask on this. So we're waiting to see what happens, but I think that this is a moment where where there's a potential for fundamental change. We'll see whether it's realized. Yeah, and sort of along those lines, and maybe as we come here to the end of our conversation, to ask about timing and trajectory and what you see as the future. And, and maybe just instead of just asking you to have a crystal ball into the future, I'll ask a, a little bit about whether you think the, the past might be prologue. It would occur to me that the Trump administration era was, I think, by anyone's standard, like an especially toxic time for politics, you know, to say the least. So I would have suspected that if there was a time when corporate America, to your point about risk 
consumer blowback, employee blowback, if there was a time where corporations might come to the conclusion that the risk was too great or that they just had to be much more thoughtful about every individual spending decision, it could no longer be sort of short-sighted or, or merely to get access. They had to consider all these other factors. I would suspect that a lot of that would have occurred at some point over the last four years, maybe increasingly so over the last four years, as that arena just became so radioactive. I'd be curious then to see, okay, well, what kind of momentum does that have as the Trump administration becomes a thing of the past? Do those practices grow, expand, stay, you know, stagnate? Do they regress at all? So I guess my question for you is, is my suspicion correct? Is that at all what you saw happen over the last four years? Or has this been more of a, even in the last few months kind of thing as it all just came to a head during the transition? No, no. You asked the right question. We have an annual index. It's called the CPA Zicklin Index that benchmarks the S&P 500 companies on their political disclosure and accountability policies. For the 2020 index, we did a look back over the Trump era, 2016 to 2020. And what we found was both a boom and a boom for company adoption of transparency and accountability. We saw the number of companies that were trendsetters, scores with 90 or above on the index, increase you know, greatly. 79 today you know, it may have been you know, in, in the upper 40s when we started. But then we found that there was a concomitant boom in company strengthening or adoption of accountability policies. You know, we take a close look at what do the boards do in setting policy? What do the boards do in, in reviewing the company political spending? And we found that there was significant strengthening. So I think that this was a movement that started, you know, back in 2000, with 2016 and just, you know, moved ahead. We made progress. And then, you know, things really have come to a head with the attack on the Capitol. So I think that there's a momentum going forward on this because, you know, clearly the political climate is not going to get any better going forward. We, we can just see that in what's happening right now. Companies really will be concerned because you do have a much more hypersensitized consumer group and employee group. So again, that gets to the bottom line. And the magic of that, is it as magical as it sounds? And by that, I just mean, how sensitive do you think these companies are to the blowback that they are getting when they get it from social media, from the public at large? On the one hand, my assumption would be that they're very sensitive to it, that they are risk averse, and that they, you know, they don't want to end up in the news for the wrong reason. And they, they, they're very attentive to that. On the other hand, I wonder if the the speed at which these stories change and, and jump around, I guess the short attention span of, of this moment that we live in, I wonder too sometimes if as soon as we all as consumers start focusing on the next problem, in the back of my head, I always wonder if, if the company that we were just paying attention to is taking advantage of the fact that our eyes no longer on that ball. You're obviously not someone who's jumping around from issue to issue as rapidly as the average consumer. You're taking the long view. You're studying these companies well after the rest of us have, have turned our sights elsewhere. Do the kinds of changes that this public blowback sometimes causes in the short term, do they seem to persist? Are they sticky? That's a very good question. You know, we re it remains to be seen. I think that we have seen that there are enough examples of companies that are reacting to what they may be associated with. For instance, you know, I think it may have been after Parkland or Sandy Hook when you had 
Delta Airline ending its affinity relationship with the National Rifles Association. You know, in the 2018 election, there was a candidate in Florida running for governor who called himself a proud NRA sellout. Public Supermarkets was a major donor to that candidate. We found in the 2020 elections that public supermarkets really did change the way it approached its political spending. It became much more cautious. You know, back in 2018, after the Parkland shooting, Publix had a, a die-in by Parkland students at their store. You know, these are examples. It remains to be seen how pervasive it is, but I think that it's trending in the right direction. And we have to see, again, how deep the roots are on this. It remains to be seen. But the fact is there is momentum. The fact that political disclosure and accountability became the norm is very important because it, it showed, and that, that was recognized independently by a law professor in a law review article. He wrote that article without getting in touch with us. So we were very pleased with that. <laughs> That's great. For us, it meant that it was an independent judgment. So, you know, we keep a close watch on this. We'll be able to see better what it means when we do the 2021 index and we see what happens in the 2021 proxy season. Well, then before I let you go, let me just ask that you share with folks where they can go to follow your work, follow the work of the Center for Political Accountability, so that as you release the 2021 index and all the other great research that you do, people know where they can keep touch. Go to www.politicalaccountability.net. It's www.politicalaccountability.net. We have everything there in the sliders, and then you scroll down on the website. Terrific. Well, I so appreciate what you do. I think it's really important, and I, I'm so grateful for you coming on and sharing with us a little bit about all the wonderful work and all of the insight that helps make sense of, of some of the craziness we read about every day. So thank you for, for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your insight and shedding some light on this very important topic. I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking. I enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai and follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI. Mm-hmm.